14. S and dance. Kittles and crockery placed upon it danced a clattering dance the live long night, and spilled their contents, disturbed the farmer's rest, and worded the family. The stone had to be conveyed back to its former resting place, and the farm again was undisturbed by tumultuous spirits. Some of these crosses had been used for gateposts. Vandals have sometimes wanted a sundial in their churchyards, and have ruthlessly knocked off the head and upper part of the shaft of a cross, as they did at Halton, Lancashire, in order to provide a base for their dial. In these and countless other ways have these crosses suffered, and certainly, from the aesthetic and architectural point of view, we have to bewail the loss of many of the most lovely monuments of the piety and taste of our forefathers. We will now gather up the fragments of the ancient crosses of England ere these also vanish from our country. They served many purposes and were of divers kinds. There were preaching crosses, on the steps of which the early missionary or Saxon priest stood when he proclaimed the message of the gospel. Air churches were built for worship. These wandering clerics used to set up crosses in the villages, and beneath their shade preached, baptized, and said mass. The pagan Saxons worshipped stone pillars. So in order to wean them from their superstition the Christian missionaries erected these stone crosses and carved upon them the figures of the Savior and his apostles, displaying before the eyes of their hearers the story of the cross written in stone. The north of England has many examples of these crosses, some of which were fashioned by St. Wilfred, Archbishop of York, in the 8th century, when he traveled about his diocese a large number of monks and workmen attended him, and amongst these were the cutters in stone who made the crosses and erected them on the spots which Wilfred consecrated to the worship of God. St. Paulinus and others did the same. Hence arose a large number of these Saxon works of art, which we propose to examine and to try to discover the meaning of some of the strange sculptures found upon them. In spite of iconoclasm and vandalism there remains in England a vast number of pre-Norman crosses, and it will be possible to refer only to the most noted and curious examples. These belong chiefly to four main schools of art the Celtic, Saxon, Roman, and Scandinavian. These various streams of northern and classical ideas met and were blended together, just as the wild sagas of the Vikings and the teaching of the gospel showed themselves together in sculptured representations and symbolized the victory of the crucified one over the legends of heathendom. The age and period of these crosses, the greater influence of one or other of these schools have wrought differences, the beauty and delicacy of the carving is in most cases remarkable, and we stand amazed at the superabundance of the inventive faculty that could produce such wondrous work. A great characteristic of these early sculptures is the curious interlacing scroll work, consisting of knotted and interlaced cords of divers patterns and designs. There is an immense variety in this carving of these early artists. Examples are shown of geometrical designs, of floriated ornament, of which the conventional vine pattern is the most frequent and of rope work and other interlacing ornament. We can find space to describe only a few of the most remarkable. The famous Bewacastle Cross stands in the most northern corner of the county of Cumberland. Only the shaft remains. In its complete condition it must have been at least 21 feet high. A runic inscription on the west side records that it was erected in memory of Alchfrith Lely King of Northumbria. He was the son of Oswe, the friend and patron of St. Wilfred who loved art so much that he brought workmen from Italy to build churches and carve stone, and he decided in favor of the Roman party at the famous Synod of Whitby. On the south side the runes tell that the cross was erected in the first year of Agthrith, king of this realm, who began to reign 670 AD. On the west side are three panels containing deeply incised figures, 
the lowest one of which has on his wrist a hawk, an emblem of nobility, the other three sides are filled with interlacing, floreated, and geometrical ornament. Bishop Brown believes that these scrolls and interlacings had their origin in Lombardy and not in Ireland, that they were Italian and not Celtic, and that the same sort of designs were used in the southern land early in the 7th century, once they were brought by Wilfred to this country. Another remarkable cross is that of Rootwell, now sheltered from wind and weather in the Durham Cathedral Museum. It is very similar to that Apua Castle, though probably not wrought by the same hands. In the panels are sculptures representing events in the life of our Lord. The lowest panel is too defaced for us to determine the subject. On the second we see the flight into Egypt, on the third figures of Paul, the first hermit, and Anthony, the first monk, are carved. On the fourth is a representation of our Lord treading underfoot the heads of swine, and on the highest there is the figure of St. John the Baptist with the Lamb. On the reverse side are the Annunciation, the Salutation, and other scenes of Gospel history and the other sides are covered with floral and other decoration. In addition to the figures there are five stanzas of an Anglo-Saxon poem of singular beauty expressed in runes. It is the story of the crucifixion told in touching words by the cross itself, which narrates its own sad tale from the time when it was a growing tree by the woodside until at length, after the body of the Lord had been taken down the warriors left me there standing defiled with blood. On the head of the cross are inscribed the words, Conedmon made me, Conedmon the first of English poets who poured forth his songs in praise of Almighty God and told in Saxon poetry the story of the creation and of the life of our Lord. Another famous cross is that at Gosforth, which is of a much later date and of a totally different character from those which we have described. The carvings show that it is not Anglian, but that it is connected with Viking thought and work. On it is inscribed the story of one of the sagas, the wild legends of the Norsemen, preserved by their skalds or bards, and handed down from generation to generation as the precious traditions of their race. On the west side we see Heimdall, the brave watchman of the gods, with his sword withstanding the powers of evil, and holding in his left hand the Gyula horn, the terrible blast of which shook the world. He is overthrowing hell, the grim goddess of the shades of death, who is riding on the pale horse. Below we see Loki the murderer of the holy Baldur, the blasphemer of the gods, bound by strong chains to the sharp edges of a rock, while as a punishment for his crimes a snake drops poison upon his face, making him yell with pain, and the earth quakes with his convulsive tremblings, his faithful wife Sajin catches the poison in a cup, but when the vessel is full she is obliged to empty it, and then a drop falls on the forehead of Loki, the destroyer, and the earth shakes on account of his writhings, the continual conflict between good and evil is wonderfully described in these old Norse legends. On the reverse side we see the triumph of Christianity, a representation of the crucifixion, and beneath is the woman bruising the serpent's head. In the former sculptures the monster is shown with two heads, here it has only one, and that is being destroyed. Christ is conquering the powers of evil on the cross. In another fragment at Gosforth we see Thor fishing for the Midgard worm, the offspring of Loki a serpent cast into the sea which grows continually and threatens the world with destruction. A bull's head is the bait which Thor uses, but fearing for the safety of his boat, he has cut the fishing line and released the monstrous worm, giant whale sport in the sea which afford pastime to the mighty Thor. Such are some of the strange tales which these crosses tell. There is an old Viking legend inscribed on the cross at Leeds, Volund, who was the same mysterious person as our whale and smith, is seen carrying off a swan maiden, that his feet are his hammer, anvil, bellows, and pincers, 
the cross was broken to pieces in order to make way for the building of the old Leeds church hundreds of years ago, but the fragments have been pieced together, and we can see the swan maiden carried above the head of Valand, her wings hanging down and held by two ropes that encircle her waist, the smith holds her by her back hair and by the tail of her dress. There were formerly several other crosses which had been broken up and used as building material. At Halton, Lancashire, there is a curious cross of inferior workmanship, but it records the curious mingling of pagan and Christian ideas and the triumph of the latter over the Viking deities. On one side we see emblems of the four evangelists and the figures of saints, on the other are scenes from the Sigurd legend. Sigurd sits at the anvil with hammer and tongs and bellows, forging a sword. Above him is shown the magic blade completed, with hammer and tongs, while Fawdney writhes in the knotted throes that everywhere signify his death. Sigurd is seen toasting Fawdney's heart on a stint. He has placed the stint on a rest, and is turning it with one hand, while flames ascend from the fagots beneath. He has burnt his finger and is putting it to his lips. Above are the interlacing boughs of a sacred tree, and sharp eyes may detect the talking pies that perch thereon, to which Sigurd is listening. On one side we see the noble horse Granny coming riderless home to tell the tale of Sigurd's death, and above is the pit with its crawling snakes that yawns for Gunnar and for all the wicked whose fate is to be turned into hell. On the south side are panels filled with a floriated design representing the vine and twisted knotwork rope ornamentation. On the west is a tall resurrection cross with figures on each side, and above a winged and seated figure with two others in a kneeling posture. Possibly these represent the two Marys kneeling before the angel seated on the stone of the Holy Sepulchre on the morning of the resurrection of our Lord. A curious cross has at last found safety after many vicissitudes in Hornby Church, Lancashire. It is one of the most beautiful fragments of Anglian work that has come down to modern times. One panel shows a representation of the miracle of the loaves and fishes. At the foot are shown the two fishes and the five loaves carved in bold relief. A conventional tree springs from the central loaf, and on each side is an in figure. The carving is still so sharp and crisp that it is difficult to realize that more than a thousand years had elapsed since the sculptor finished his task. It would be a pleasant task to wander through all the English counties and note all pre-Norman crosses that remain in many a lonely churchyard, but such a lengthy journey and careful study are too extended for our present purpose. Some of them were memorials of deceased persons, others as we have seen, were erected by the early missionaries, but preaching crosses were erected and used in much later times, and we will now examine some of the medieval examples which time has spared, and note the various uses to which they were adapted. The making of graves has often caused the undermining and premature fall of crosses and monuments, hence early examples of churchyard crosses have often passed away and medieval ones been erected in their place. Churchyard crosses were always placed at the south side of the church, and always faced the east. The carving and ornamentation naturally follow the style of architecture prevalent at the period of their erection. They had their uses for ceremonial and liturgical purposes, processions being made to them on Palm Sunday, and it is stated in Young's History of Whitby that devotees creeped towards them and kissed them on Good Fridays, so that a cross was considered as a necessary appendage to every cemetery. Preaching crosses were also erected in distant parts of large parishes in the days when churches were few, and sometimes market crosses were used for this purpose. Wayside or weeping crosses along the roads of England stood in ancient times many a roadside or weeping cross. Their purpose is well set forth in the work Dives et Popper, printed at Westminster in 1496. Therein it is stated, 
for this reason ben ye crosses by ye way, that when folk passing see the crosses, they shall to think ye on high that day on the cross, and worship ye high above all things, along the pilgrim ways doubtless there were many, and near villages and towns formerly they stood, but unhappily they made such convenient gate posts when the head was knocked off, fortunately several have been rescued and restored, it was a very general custom to erect these wayside crosses along the roads leading to an old parish church for the convenience of funerals. There were no hearses in those days, hence the coffin had to be carried a long way. And the roads were bad, and bodies heavy, and the bearers were not sorry to find frequent resting places, and the mourners' hearts were comforted by constant prayer as they passed along the long, sad road with their dear ones for the last time. These wayside crosses, or weeping crosses, were therefore of great practical utility. Many of the old churches in Lancashire were surrounded by a group of crosses, arranged in radiating lines along the converging roads, and at suitable distances for rest. You will find such ranges of crosses in the parishes of Ogden, Ormskirk, and Burstoff Priory, and at each a prayer for the soul of the departed was offered or the de profundi sung. Everyone is familiar with the famous Eleanor crosses erected by King Edward I to mark the spots where the body of his beloved queen rested when it was being borne on its last sad pilgrimage to a Westminster Abbey. Market crosses market crosses form an important section of our subject, and are an interesting feature of the old market places wherein they stand. Mr. Gunn contends that they were the ancient meeting places of the local assemblies, and we know that for centuries in many towns they had been the rallying points for the inhabitants. Here fairs were proclaimed, and are still in some old-fashioned places, beginning with the quaint formula, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, a strange corruption of the old Norman-French word oh yes, meaning, hear ye, I have printed in my book English Villages a very curious proclamation of a fair and market which was read a few years ago at Broughton and Furness by the steward of the Lord of the Manor from the steps of the old market cross. Very comely and attractive structures are many of these ancient crosses. They vary very much in different parts of the country and according to the period in which they were erected. The earliest are simple crosses with steps. Later on they had niches for sculptured figures, and then in the southern shires a kind of penthouse, usually octagonal in shape, enclosed the cross, in order to provide shelter from the weather for the market folk. In the north the hardy Yorkshiremen and Lancastrians wrecked not for rain and storms, and few covered in crosses can be found. You will find some beautiful specimens of these at Malmaysbury, Chichester, Summerton, Shepton Mallet, Cheddar, Axbridge, Netherstoy, Dunster, South Penderton, Banwell, and other places. Salisbury Market Cross, of which we give an illustration, is remarkable for its fine and elaborate Gothic architectural features, its numerous niches and foliate pinnacles, at one time a sundial and ball crowned the structure, but these have been replaced by a cross. It is usually called the Poultry Cross. Near it and in other parts of the city are quaint overhanging houses, though the Guild Hall has vanished, destroyed in the 18th century. The Joiner's Hall, the Tailor's Hall, the meeting places of the old guilds, the Hall of John Halla, and the Old George are still standing with some of their features modified, but not sufficiently altered to deprive them of interest. Sometimes you will find above a cross and overhead chamber, which was used for the storing of market appurtenances, the reeve of the lord of the manor, or if the town was owned by a monastery, or the market and fair had been granted to a religious house, the abbot's official sat in this covered place to receive dues from the merchants or stall holders. There are no less than 200 old crosses in Somerset, 
many of them 15th century work. Saxon crosses exist at Robero and Kelston, a 12th century cross at Harptree, early English crosses at Chilton Trinity, Dunster, and Broomfield, decorated crosses at Williton, Wivelyscombe, Bishop Slydeard, Chudmendite, and those at Sutton Bingham and Raggle are 15th century, but not all these are market crosses. The southwest district of England is particularly rich in these relics of ancient piety, but many have been allowed to disappear. Glastonbury Market Cross, a fine perpendicular structure with a roof, was taken down in 1808, and a new one with no surrounding arcade was erected in 1846. The old one bore the arms of Richard Beret, abbot of Glastonbury, who died in 1524. The wall of an adjacent house has a piece of stone carving representing a man and a woman clasping hands, and tradition asserts that this formed part of the original cross, together with the cross was an old conduit which frequently accompanied the market cross. Cheddar Cross is surrounded by its battlement arcade with grotesque gargoyles. A later erection, the shaft going through the roof. Taunton Market Cross was erected in 1867 in place of a 15th century structure destroyed in 1780. On its steps the Duke of Monmouth was proclaimed king, and from the window of the old angel in Judge Jeffreys watched with pleasure the hanging of the deluded followers of the Duke from the tie beams of the market arcade. Dunster Market Cross is known as the Yarn Market, and was erected in 1600 by George Luttrell, sheriff of the county of Somerset. The town was famous for its cursy cloths, sometimes called Dunsters, which were sold under the shade of this structure. Wymondham, in the county of Norfolk, standing on the high road between Norwich and London, has a fine market cross erected in 1617. A great fire raged here in 1615, when 300 houses were destroyed and probably the old cross vanished with them, and this one was erected to supply its place. The old cross at Wells, built by William Knight, Bishop of Bath in 1542, was taken down in 1783. Leland states that it was a right sumptuous piece of work. Over the vaulted roof was the Donus Chivica or Town Hall. The tolls of the market were devoted to the support of the choristers of Wells Cathedral. Leland also records a market cross at Bruton which had six arches and a pillar in the middle, for market folks to stand in. It was built by the last abbot of Bruton in 1533, and was destroyed in 1790. Bridgewater Cross was removed in 1820, and Milverton in 1850. Happily the inhabitants of some towns and villages were not so easily deprived of their ancient crosses, and the people of Crosscone, Somerset deserve great credit for the spirited manner in which they opposed the demolition of their cross about 30 years ago. With me butter cross, Oxon, the town whence blankets come, has a central pillar which stands on three steps, the superstructure being supported on 13 circular pillars. An inscription on the lantern above records the following, G.U.L.I.I. Amuse Blake Armeter de Cobbs 1683 restored 1868-1889-1894 It has a steep roof, gabled and stone slated which is not improved by the pseudo-Gothic barge boards, added during the restorations. Many historical events of great importance have taken place at these market crosses which have been so hardly used. Kings were always proclaimed here at their accession, and would-be kings had also shared that honor. Thus at Lancaster in 1715 the pretender was proclaimed king as James I.I.I., and, as we have stated, the Duke of Monmouth was proclaimed king at Taunton and Bridgewater. Charles I.I. received that honor at Lancaster Market Cross in 1651, nine years before he ruled. Bans of marriage were published here in Cromwell's time, 
and these crosses have witnessed all the cruel punishments which were inflicted on delinquents in the good old days. The last step of the cross was often well worn, as it was the seat of the culprits who sat in the stocks, stocks, whipping posts, and pillories, of which we shall have much to say. Always stood nigh the cross, and as late as 1822 a poor wretch was tied to a cart wheel at the Colm Cross, Lancashire, and whipped. Sometimes the cross is only a cross in name, and an obelisk has supplanted the Christian symbol. The change is deemed to be attributable to the ideas of some of the reformers who desired to assert the supremacy of the crown over the church. Hence they placed an orb on the top of the obelisk surmounted by a small, plain Latin cross, and later on a large crown took the place of the orb and cross. That Grantham the Earl of Dysart erected an obelisk which has an inscription stating that it occupies the site of the Grantham Eleanor Cross. This is a strange error, as this cross stood on an entirely different site on Street Peters Hill and was destroyed by Cromwell's troopers. The obelisk replaced the old market cross, which was regarded with much affection and reverence by the inhabitants, who in 1779, when it was taken down by the lord of the manor, immediately obtained a mandamus for its restoration. The mayor and corporation still proclaim the Lent Fair in quaint and archaic language at this poor substitute for the old cross. One of the uses of the market cross was to inculcate the sacredness of bargains. There is a curious stone erection in the marketplace at Midlam, Yorkshire, which seems to have taken the place of the market cross and to have taught the same truth. It consists of a platform on which are two pillars. One carries the effigy of some animal in a kneeling posture, resembling a sheep or a cow. The other supports an octagonal object traditionally supposed to represent a cheese. The farmers used to walk up the opposing flights of steps when concluding a bargain and shake hands over the sculptures, ancient crosses and holy wells of Lancashire, by Henry Taylor, FSA Boundary Crosses Crosses marked in medieval times the boundaries of ecclesiastical properties, which by the sacred symbol were thus protected from encroachment and spoliation. County boundaries were also marked by crosses and mere stones. The seven crosses of Oldham marked the estate owned by the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem. Crosses at crossroads and holy wells where roads meet and many travelers pass aid a cross was often erected. It was a wayside or weeping cross. Their pilgrims knelt to implore divine aid for their journey and protection from outlaws and robbers, from accidents and sudden death. At holy wells the cross was set in order to remind the frequenters of the sacredness of the springs and to wean them from all superstitious thoughts and pagan customs. Sir Walter Scott alludes to this connection of the cross and well in Marmion, when he tells of a little fountain cell, bearing the legend, Drink, weary pilgrim, drink and pray for the kind soul of Sibyl Gray, who built this cross and well, in the corner of a field on the Billington Hall farm, just outside the parish of Hogg. There lies the base, with a portion of the shaft, of a 14th century wayside cross. It stands within 10 feet of an old disused lane leading from Billington to Bradley. Common report pronounced it to be an old font. Report states that it was said to be a stone dropped out of a cart as the stones from Billington Chapel were being conveyed to Bradley to be used in building its churchyard wall. A superstitious veneration has always attached to it. A former owner of the property wrote as follows, the late Mr. Jackson, who was a very superstitious man, once told me that a former tenant of the farm, whilst plowing the field, pulled up the stone and the same day his team of wagon horses was all drowned. He then put it into the same place again, and all went on right, and that he himself would not have it disturbed upon any account. A similar legend is attached to another cross, Cross Leewood, near Raglan, 
called the White Cross, which is still complete, and has evidently been whitewashed, was moved by a man from its base at some crossroads to his garden. From that time he had no luck and all his animals died. He attributed this to his sacrilegious act and removed it to a piece of waste ground. The next owner afterwards enclosed the waste with the cross standing in it. The hog cross is only a fragment almost precisely similar to a fragment at Bully, in Somerset, of early 14th century date. The remaining part is clearly the top stone of the base, measuring 2 feet 11 2 inches square by 1 foot 6 inches high, and the lowest portion of the shaft sunk into it, and measuring 1 foot 1 inch square by 101 2 inches high. Careful excavation showed that the stone is probably still standing on its original site. There is in the same parish, where there are four crossroads, a place known as the White Cross. Not a vestige of a stone remains, but on a slight mound at the crossing stands a venerable oak. Now dying, in Monmouthshire oaks have often been so planted on the sites of crosses, and in some cases the bases of the crosses still remain. There are in that county about 30 sites of such crosses and in 17 some stones still exist, and probably there are many more unknown to the antiquary, but hidden away in corners of old paths, and in field ways, and in ditches that used to serve as roads. A question of great interest arises, what were the origin and use of these wayside crosses, and why were so many of them, especially at crossroads, known as the White Cross, that Abergavenny had cross stood at crossroads, there is a White Cross street in London and one in Monmouth, where a cross stood, were these planted by the White Cross Knights the Knights of Malta, or of S. John of Jerusalem, or are they the work of the Carmelite, or White, Friars, there is good authority for the general idea that they were often used as preaching stations, or as praying stations, as is so frequently the case in Brittany, but did they at crossroads in any way serve the purpose of the modern signpost, they are certainly of very early origin. The author of Ecclesiastical Polity says that the erection of wayside crosses was a very ancient practice. Chrysostom says that they were common in his time. Eusbius says that their building was begun by Constantine the Great to eradicate paganism. Juvenal states that a shapeless post, with a marble head of mercury on it, was erected at crossroads to point out the way, and Eusbius says that wherever Constantine found a statue of Bidealia the Roman goddess who delivered from straying from the path or of Mercury's triceps who served the same kind purpose for the Greeks. He pulled it down and had a cross placed upon the site. If, then, these crossroad crosses of later medieval times also had something to do with directions for the way. Another source of the designation white cross is by no means to be laughed out of court, viz. that they were whitewashed, and thus more prominent objects by day, and especially by night. It is quite certain that many of them were whitewashed for the remains of this may still be seen on them, and the use of whitewash or plaster was far more usual in England than is generally known. There is no doubt that the whole of the outside of the Abbey Church of St. Albans, and of White Castle, from top to base, were coated with whitewash. Ancient Crosses and Holy Wells of Lancashire, by Henry Taylor, F.S.A. whether they were whitened or not, or whether they served as guideposts or stations for prayer. It is well that they should be carefully preserved and restored as memorials of the faith of our forefathers, and for the purpose of raising the heart of the modern pilgrim to Christ, the Savior of men. Sanctuary crosses when criminals sought refuge in ancient sanctuaries, such as Durham, Beverly, Ripon, Manchester, and other places which provided the privilege, having claimed sanctuary and been provided with a distinctive dress, 
they were allowed to wander within certain prescribed limits, that Beverly Minster the fugitive from justice could wander with no fear of capture to a distance extending a mile from the church in all directions, richly carved crosses marked the limit of the sanctuary, a peculiar reverence for the cross protected the fugitives from violence if they kept within the bounds, in Cheshire, in the wild region of Delamere Forest, there are several ancient crosses erected for the convenience of travelers, and under their shadows they were safe from robbery and violence at the hands of outlaws, who always respected the reverence attached to these symbols of Christianity. Crosses as guideposts in wild moorland and desolate hills travelers often lost their way. Hence crosses were set up to guide them along the trackless heaths. They were as full as signposts, and conveyed an additional lesson. You will find such crosses in the desolate country on the borderland of Yorkshire and Lancashire. They were usually placed on the summit of hills. In Buckinghamshire there are two crosses cut in the turf on a spur of the Chilterns, Whiteleaf and Bledlow crosses, which were probably marks for the direction of travelers through the wild and dangerous woodlands. Though popular tradition connects them with the memorials of ancient battles between the Saxons and Danes. From time out of mind crosses have been the rallying point for the discussion of urgent public affairs. It was so in London. Paul's Cross was the constant meeting place of the citizens of London whenever they were excited by oppressive laws. The troublesome competition of foreigners. Or any attempt to interfere with their privileges and liberties. The meetings of the Shire or Hundred Moots took place often at crosses. Or other conspicuous or well-known objects. Hundreds were named after them. Such as the Hundred of Fair Cross in Berkshire of Single Cross in Sussex, Norman Cross in Huntingdonshire, and Brother Cross and Guild Cross, or Guildy Cross, in Norfolk. Stories and legends have clustered around them. There is the famous Stump Cross in Cheshire, the subject of one of Nixon's prophecies. It is supposed he, 